HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network since 2009. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Hello to everyone. I'm Louisa Kasdan, your host for Let's Talk About Food, a podcast devoted to first-person storytelling where food plays a pivotal, if not a starring role. Everyone has a food story. Food is at the heart of human connection, at the center of love, of ritual, of need and want, and most of all, food creates community. And community is what we crave. Our guest today is one of my favorite members of the culinary elite, Martha Rose Schulman. She's an award-winning author of more than 25 cookbooks, including The Simple Art of Vegetarian Cooking, which was named one of the six best vegetarian cookbooks of the last 25 years by Cooking Light magazine. For eight years, Martha wrote the feature entitled Recipes for Health for the New York Times. She has over 1,500 recipes featured on the New York Times cooking site, and she is just the best. Let's have a listen. I'm talking today to the remarkable Martha Rose Schulman, who I have known for a couple of years, but she always surprises me. And nothing surprises me more than hearing how she got from point A to B to C to D to where she is, because it's been a remarkable journey. Her first book was one of my Bibles when I was learning to cook. And when I finally met her and realized that we were contemporaneous in age, I was agog. Martha, you've written now how many books? I've probably written about 30 books. (laughs) And I've done a lot of collaborations in recent years as well. Have you any round number for how many recipes you have written and published? I don't have a round number, but I know that I have something like 1,600 recipes on the New York Times cooking website. (laughs) 1,600 recipes on the New York Times website. And... We're going to talk about how all of your papers are going to end up at the Schlesinger Library as well. Yeah, they are. So many other things. But I know that you you started off in Connecticut, and you went to 
boarding school, you went to college. Tell us a little bit about how the great Martha Rose Schumann became okay. the great Martha Rose Schumann. Well, I had a sort of improvised life. <laughs> I did go to prep school, and then I went to Radcliffe, Harvard. But after my first year there, it was a very political time, and I had worked with American Friends Service Committee work camp the summer before my college freshman year with migrant farm workers who were in Michigan. So I decided to take a job the summer after my freshman year in Michigan working with migrant farm workers. And I got so excited about that work that I decided to take a semester off from school. And I went to the Rio Grande Valley in South Texas and there I stayed for uh, many years. I lived in the Rio Grande Valley working with the United Farm Workers for a few years. And then I went to Austin and had the glorious, glorious 70s in Austin. A few years into my life in Austin, I started cooking. I always loved to cook. And I was a first wave vegetarian. And I was making just so much good food. And I thought, I like to do this. I'm going to do this. So I dropped out of school once more and I started teaching vegetarian cooking classes. This was 1973. And I got on the roster at the University of Texas uh, Extension classes. And most of my students that first year were mothers of teenagers who had declared that they were vegetarians and they, they just didn't know what to do. So that was how it all started. <laughs> and somehow you went from being in Texas to suddenly running a supper club in Paris. Right. Okay. So when I decided to make cooking my career, I started the vegetarian cooking classes and somebody said, oh, so-and-so is doing these dinners and you pay a dollar to come. <laughs> I thought, oh, I could do that. So I started a supper club and it was a once a week sit down dinner, the tables being on the floor, of course, for up to 30 people. And it allowed me to really develop a repertoire. And so I did that for several years and then I started catering and then I started traveling and I discovered how much I loved France. A couple of friends were moving to France for a year and I tagged along and ended up staying there for 12 years. And I started my supper club again in Paris. And that was a big hit too. <laughs> a really big hit. But I assume yeah. that by the time you got there, it wasn't a dollar a meal. No, that was never like a big profit making uh, thing. It, it, allowed, it, it was my expense account to entertain and to develop recipes. And it, it always, I always broke a little more than even. I found, you mentioned that I have an archive that's at the Schlesinger Library, and I have all my original Supper Club notebooks. <laughs> I found these little spreadsheets that I wrote before I knew the word spreadsheet with my outgoings. I was just a little business lady. <laughs> <laughs> business hippie. But uh, I always had a few dollars more <laughs> in my pickle jar at the end of it. So what would have been an archetypal supper club menu in Paris? In Paris, let's say it's October as it is now. I One of my favorite October menus was a Provençal 
a menu. They were vegetarian at these dinners, although sometimes I did fish, and that was very curious for the French as well. So I would start that meal with a kind of assortment of Provençal starters, like a tion, a, a Provençal omelet, uh, some marinated vegetables, and maybe a little frise salad. And then uh, my main dish would be a soup au pistou, which is a sort of Provençal version of minestrone with a pesto stirred in at the end. And dessert, maybe there would still be figs. I'd do a fig crumble, something like that. And I would make the bread and it was, they were good. (laughs) So there you were all by your little self making these incredible dinners. How did you get the gumption? I don't know how to say this exactly. I don't know. (laughs) I've always kind of had that, I guess. I waited a couple of years till I had enough friends to invite. And I remember the first dinner, uh, I hadn't gotten, somebody was making me a table, but I didn't have it yet. I think there were 14 of us and we, and I said, it's going to be picnic style on the floor. (laughs) I just invited them. And what I would do is I would regularly send out these announcements with these little clip off coupons for you to send back with your reservations. Low tech. (laughs) Very low tech. Very low tech. Yeah. But it was high tech for the time. (laughs) Did your mom teach you to cook? Where did it all come from? My stepmother started me cooking. I, I was 17 one summer. I said, I want to learn to cook. We had great meals at home. And I, she said, what do you want to cook? And I said, I want to cook what we eat. And that, we ate lots of meat, <laughs> big pieces of meat. And, but Mary, my stepmother, really knew how to cook vegetables. And she had lived in Europe and she gave us arugula salads and she made ratatouille and stuff like that. So I just learned the stuff that I liked. And then I started having dinner parties. I think that I, it was all like, so I could have people over. <laughs> So you're in Paris, you're having these dinner parties, you are meeting all sorts of cool people and staying with even cooler people, if you wanted to name drop, but which you could, I know. And then, so you wrote the first book. I I actually wrote my first two books when I was still in Austin. And after I'd been doing the supper club in Austin for two years, I took a month off and wrote a cookbook with all my supper club menus. And it took me two years to sell that book. But I finally did. And I sold it to Harper and Rowe, which Harper Collins now. And my editor was Frances McCullough, who was Diana Kennedy's editor and Paula Wolford's editor. And she really taught me so much about writing recipes. So that came out in 1978. And that was called The Vegetarian Feast. And it ended up not being a menu book, but more traditional breakdown. Then I wrote a book called Fast Vegetarian Feasts. I delivered the manuscript on my way to Paris, and it came out in 1982. I was already transitioned to writing, and I loved that. And I was already doing some magazine work as well. And had that been, once you started cooking, had that been a plan? I've always said I was a writer in search of a subject. My father was a writer, and and I think writing came very easily to me. So once I had this body of work, I sat down and wrote it up. And when I was in Paris, I was already writing articles, but I always wrote up 
after the supper club, I would write it up. If there had been an internet, then I definitely would have had a blog. That's why I have this huge archive, because I have so much written down about everything. Wow. How long did this go on for in Paris? Well, I lived there for 12 years, and the supper club pretty much, I think that went on for about eight of those 12 years, a long time. They weren't once a week, though. They were once a month. <laughs> and what brought you out of Paris? I married when I was there, my first husband, and he decided to get a law degree. He was a journalist, and there was a really big recession in the early 90s, and freelance journalism was just not happening. And so he decided, he covered the entertainment industry, and he decided to get a law degree. And so we came to California, because that was kind of the obvious place to do that. And I thought I'd be back in Paris, but I'm still in California. <laughs> <laughs> so then you came back to California, and did the supper club Reemerge? No, I was writing so much by then. I have a lot of dinner parties. Whether I'm seating 30 or six, it's the same process. I work really hard on my menu. I make myself a little schedule. I, It's all kind of a performance in a way. But I love having people over. I have been with you and cooked with you. And I have one wonderful memory that will seem so insignificant to you because I have a lot of good memories with you. But once you were at my house and you said, well, can I do something? I said, oh yeah, make the salad dressing. And literally you measured out how you were making the salad dressing. And I, I can make salad dressing, but, and I said to you, don't you know how to do it? You said, the reason I know how to do it is that I always measure everything. <laughs> well, it's funny because I, I mean, I don't always measure everything, but like with salad dressing, I know my formula and it really works well. Most of the recipes I follow are mine because I know what they taste like. I don't always yeah. have to have a recipe. <laughs> so Martha, you're out in California. You're married to somebody who's now a new lawyer and you just start doing stuff. Does the recipe come first? Does the need to create a recipe come first or does the product come first? Sometimes one way, sometimes the other. When I was doing recipes for the New York Times, when I had my column called Recipes for Health, and it was a daily recipe, five a week. So I would pick a theme and then riff on that theme. It could be eggplant and I do five. And sometimes I research and sometimes I just have an idea. If I research something, I sometimes write it, try to write it first because I've written so many recipes, but sometimes I just have to do it in the kitchen and write it as I'm working. Do you make everything before you write the recipe, or do you know it so well, know the process so well, that you just say, yeah, I'm going to add two tomatoes to this eggplant? Or do Yeah, I, I usually can get a rough draft of something before I, I hit the kitchen, and then I might alter it while I'm testing. I, I can't imagine what it must have been like to write 
a daily recipe for the New York Times. What was it like? It was a lot of pressure <laughs> because it wasn't the only thing I was doing too. I was working on books or collaborations and my son was small and so I was doing that too. It was challenging. It was a good challenge. It stretched me and I I want like I would sometimes work with things with grains that I hadn't worked with a lot or types of food. So it it was great. It was really a lot of fun. Amazing. And if people ask you now, because in a way, when you were first cooking vegetarian food, as you said, it was the vanguard. Yeah. The people were trying to cope with these weird beasts that they had. I feel a little bit that way about vegans in my midst now. But yeah. vegetarians, I'm used to at this point. Do you feel that the the world of food and eating has caught up with you or you've caught up with it? Well, it, it definitely caught up with me in a way. There have been grains that I've been using a long time that you see all the time now in, in recipes. But it's cha- cooking has changed, I think. I think people are very interested in lots of different flavors. And I feel like people want to put as many of those flavors into the same dish <laughs> as they can. And sometimes that is really exciting. But sometimes to me, it doesn't make a lot of sense. My sort of culinary education is very geared towards traditional cuisines and what they taste like. And so I feel like there's so much to explore that I'm not that interested in combining flavors from different cuisines. Although it does remind me of the beginning of my vegetarian cooking, when I used to put a ton of different sorts of ingredients. My my early dishes... I think we were all trying to prove that vegetarian cooking wasn't just brown rice and lentils. <laughs> and so we made our dishes as colorful and put as many textures as we could into them. The recipes are really busy, and I, I don't use so many ingredients in one recipe anymore. <laughs> so when you say that you're more traditional, an Italian or Mediterranean palate, and go with those traditional things and play with them, or if you're yeah. making something that's that's more... Latino flavored rather than... I don't put jalapenos on my pizza. (laughs) I I do not understand pineapple pizza. (laughs) I don't either. I don't even understand barbecued chicken pizza. People are coming, you know, you have this incredible body of work and people must ask you all the time, tell me how you do it. Educate me. Give me some principles for cooking. How do you begin with somebody who hasn't done who hasn't done what you've done? They want a philosophy of yeah, how to begin. I would say cook what you like. What do you like? They say I want to. It's like what my mother said. I want to learn to cook. What do you want to learn to cook? I want to learn to cook what we eat. What I like, you know, cook what you like. Think about what you like to eat. Taste your food. I don't know. Nobody's ever really asked me from scratch that sort of question. When people are just starting to, they're going to have a dinner party and they're very nervous. And so I would say, decide on something that where you can get done some things in advance. And if you're nervous about a recipe, try to do it a week before to see if it works or if you like the way it works. I always try to make my dinner parties as easy on myself as possible. And that to me is always about what can I do ahead? Yeah. And I like to make dishes that taste even better the next day. If I'm going to have fish, then what are the other things that I'm going to have that I can do ahead? So you anchor the meal 
with something that can be done ahead. On yeah, time. or at least, yeah, or I try to have a pie crust in my freezer all the time so that I know I can make a really good tart. And the most time consuming part of making a tart is always the crust. So have that done, have that done ahead. One of my favorite books of yours is all about gratins and gratiné. Um, oh, gratin. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I think that those are perfect dinner parties. I love gratin. I, I make them all the time. It, it's just, and they're really good at room temperature and they're great. Um, I, I love your food. It is spectacularly wonderful, but not fussy, which I think. It's not fussy. Yeah. I learned a lot to living in France where, okay, there's oat cuisine and fancy restaurant food, but really French people cook on a daily basis, it's very satisfying. And I cook on a daily basis and high point of our day, dinner. And we'll be back with Martha Rose Schulman in a moment to hear more about how she organizes her kick-ass dinner parties. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City, Long Island, and Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. And we are back with Martha Rose Schulman. Do you have any words of wisdom? You've probably given more dinner parties than anybody I know about how not only to construct the menu, but how to construct the guest list. Oh, yes. You always have to have at least one guest who you know can talk to anybody, right? And two is even better. And then I always think about who they would enjoy. It's the same way I do a seating plan when I have a big dinner party. Try to put people together who might have something in common or even know somebody in common. And I feel that as a hostess, your work is to make sure people are engaged. Yes, you have to have the dinner, there's the food, but you also have to do your work as a hostess. You have to make sure that everybody is talking to somebody or that that's going on. There's a certain timber that I like to hear. I think going that on that, there was a great Larry David riff on who should be the middler at a dinner party. Oh, and it's just so funny because we have had that conversation. I have four grandchildren and they're with me a lot. Right. And we do a lot of dinners and we have decided that only two of them can handle being a middler. And we may. <laughs> and the other children, no, you can't be a middler. You have nothing to say to people. You don't know how to ask questions. <laughs> it's, 
it's been very useful, very funny, but also very useful. So all of this has happened to you. You have all of these recipes that are out there in the internet. You have this incredible body of work and, and life. And what's the next set of challenges for you? Well, I've written a memoir and I'm trying to sell it, but I have faith. <laughs> and a lot of these things I've just been talking to you about, I talk about in the memoir. So I'm always wanting to be a better writer. And then I do a lot of collaborative work with other cooks and food people who want to write books and they need a writer to help them. So that's a lot of fun. I feel like I'm not now, after creating so many recipes in my life, I don't feel like I necessarily need to create any more new recipes. <laughs> <laughs> but I love to cook still, and I love to have people over, and I love to write. And so, so. writing a memoir is such a different vein, though. How did you make that shift? I've worked on it for quite a while. It wasn't that hard a shift. I have such a good archive, so I had a lot to draw on. And just taking the time, I did take a writing, nonfiction narrative writing class, which was helpful, but just draft after draft after draft. It's a completely different kind of writing, although I, it, it's not that different from writing the intro to a book or even the intro to a recipe sometimes. Um, but you look at it differently and you read differently when you're reading other books. You just it's just crafting the writing. I love that. It's it's really a great kind of new challenge for me and, and interest. And just out of curiosity, where did you start the narrative? It starts in my childhood. It's a narrative, it's not just about my career. My mother died when I was thirteen and so there's a loss and longing going through it. And then this kind of, this improvised life that I <laughs> led is interesting. So everything kind of weaves, the loss kind of weaves through it. And the resolution of that comes at the end. <laughs> I would love to read it. Nothing is more interesting than your life. I see people getting more and more interested in food and what they eat. And mm -hmm. occasionally I am exhausted by the preciousness of people's interest in food. Where do you see food going? Well, I think vegetarian is definitely mainstream now. I think that vegan is getting to be pretty mainstream too. I think plant-based meats are going to have a place. They seem pretty processed to me. I've never been that interested in meat substitutes as a vegetarian. I've I love vegetables. I love grains. People don't want to eat meat, but they miss that kind of aspect. So I think that those, all those foods are going to have a, a place. I think we have a great challenge because the food industry is very powerful. I think the big challenge is the equalization of eating well. Yeah. The kind of people who are hopelessly devoted to your recipes and to all things like that, are really very careful about the choices they make. They see the food as medicine, the, all of those things in a way that I don't perceive that they did 20, 25 years ago. No. Yeah, I think you're right. I've been thinking about this a lot lately. Just the term food choices, only a certain class of people have food choices. So I'm very concerned about the health of 
it's not just the nation now, it's the world, because the prongs are reaching ever farther. And there's just a lot of bad food. There's a lot of bad food and a lot of food insecurity everywhere. So everywhere. You know, a really good pot of beans is not a precious thing. And it's really, if you have a cooking source, which not everybody does, yep. it's a very good thing to eat. <laughs> Are you a vegetarian exclusively? No. No. No, I'm not. I, I don't cook a lot of meat. I did roast chicken a week ago. It was really good. <laughs> <laughs> I'm shocked you know, that I, you made a good I, roast chicken. I'm shocked. <laughs> <laughs> but usually my meals are vegetarian, unless I do fish, and I, I often do that. Or I do uh, sometimes I'll do some really good chicken stew kind of thing as well. Great. What's your go-to dinner party thing for me and, you know, four or six other people who are coming? It just varies all the time. Like the last dinner party I gave, this oh. lasagna was really good. <laughs> I made a really nice chard, lasagna with chard and tomato sauce, and the chard was from my garden, which was really great. <laughs> and I I spiralized a whole bunch of zucchini and served that on the, and sauteed it really quickly and served that on the side. Well, I know if I was doing chard, I probably did this chard stock, Middle Eastern chard stock puree with tahini. It's like a hummus made with chard stocks and it's really good. And I did a really nice salad that was just mixed greens with some sliced mushrooms and tarragon and radishes. And then I did a fig tart for dessert. It was really good. That sounds pretty good. I will be there. That sounds really good. It, it, it was good. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. we love talking to you. We I love uh, talking to you. Yeah, I have been in awe of you since I first was able to meet you and to connect the person with the reputation. And we'll be looking for the menu and looking for the yeah. memoir when it comes out. I look forward to seeing you in California at my house for dinner. I'm there. And it's okay. okay. It's okay about the roast chicken. I I can make a perfectly good roast chicken. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'll I'll do something else. <laughs> Thank you so much, Martha. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you, Martha. And listeners, we'll post a link to Martha's most popular recipe on the New York Times Dining site. Hint: It's minestrone with giant white beans and winter squash. Enjoy. Thanks for listening. Let's Talk About Food is produced by The Food Voice. I'm producing, along with audio director and composer Mike Moss, of Soundscape Boston. You can find more of our stories at our website, letstalkaboutfood.com, and on Heritage Radio or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's Talk About Food is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.